Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, March 2023. I'm having a crazy Monday. Too much work, not enough time, too many balls in the air. We've talked lots of times on this show before about apparently this non-existent work-life balance. We're all working too much. We don't have enough time, especially post-COVID where work is going back to normal. My guest today, though, has a solution, or at least he promises that he has a solution. Nick Sonnenberg is um, a management consultant, and he's also an author of a new book, Come Up For Air, How Teams Can Leverage Systems and Tools to Stop Drowning in Work. He is joining us from New York City. Nick, how can you help me stop drowning in work? What's the secret here? Oh, there's It's the sum of a lot of things, but thank you very much for having me on the show. Um, where, where do you feel like you're drowning in work right now? Maybe we could start there. Well, am I going to get a a high-priced consulting session for free, or will I get a bill at the end of this? No, no, no bill. This is pure, purely free. So uh, I, I think my problem is I, I, I find it hard to delegate because I had to do so many things that I always fear that actually the process of delegation would take more time yeah. uh, than doing the work myself, which I'm sure is a mistake. Well, it might be true for the first, you know, dozen or so times, um, you know, that process is done. But I mean, if you're talking about something that's done daily or weekly, you know, at some point, you know, the time investment, I mean, you can think of time in many ways. You can spend time um, or you can invest time, just like money. You can spend money and you can invest money and delegation and the act of stopping and documenting something in detail and training someone is an investment that might take a few weeks or months to get that return on investment. But, you know, I like to look at those things as an investment. Some things, though, you know, are easier to delegate than others. So I don't know which stuff, which things you're talking about. But delegation in general, what in my experience, it's, it's easiest when you have things well documented. So and most companies, um, aren't documenting their standard operating procedures or their processes, which is what I call resources, which is the third part of my, my book. And well, my let's, book is- let's, yeah, let's stand back and get the bigger picture. You say yeah, um, uh, how, uh, how teams can leverage systems and tools to stop drowning work. Are we drowning in yeah. work or is it just a, a question of perception? It seems as if Everyone claims to be drowning in work, and they always claim it's getting worse, but it can't keep on getting worse. Otherwise, we would have drowned and none of us would be alive. (laughs) Well, I think that we've all experienced it, and I think especially the pandemic. And right now, we're we're going through an economic crisis, and people are getting laid off or and, and th- those that remain at a crisis nick we were again this is the use of language people always talk about a crisis but it doesn't seem much of a crisis to me where's the crisis well when you have interest rates uh, at the levels that they're at and you have banks defaulting now and you've got you know major companies getting hammered on their stock valuations and laying off tens of thousands of people 
I mean, I think it's going to get worse, not better. So I, I, I would consider kind of the climate right now to be a crisis, but that's not, I don't want to, I'm, I'm not trying to claim to be an, an economist. My point there was just um, people at companies are expected now to get more done with less resources as layoffs continue to, to pile up. So I do think that the feeling of drowning in work, if anything, has gotten worse, not better over the last few years. Um, what, is, um, what, what does drowning at work, uh, Nick, what does it feel like? Is it like drowning in water? Can you not breathe, do you think? What, do you, what are your clients, what do your customers tell you about the experience of drowning in work? That there's just not enough hours in the day, basically. You know, that they're working far more hours than, the, that, that, than they would like to be working with no end in sight. Um, they're working nights, weekends, um, and it's not just that. They're doing a lot of stuff that's far below their interest and pay grade level, too. They're spending a lot of time on what I call the scavenger hunt, where they're spending hours in email unnecessarily because they're not managing their email properly, or they're spending hours looking for a document that was just mis misplaced because they don't have good systems and processes of how to organize their information. So there's a significant amount of time of people, not just overworking, but they're spending a lot of that extra, those extra hours on, on things that shouldn't even have to be things if they, ha if they were a bit more organized as a team. So it's what you call, um, I think you call it in your blurb, actually, unnecessary work. We still need to work, but we are failing to distinguish between the necessary and the unnecessary. How do we do that, Nick? Well, what I call unnecessary work in that context, because you could define unnecessary in many ways, but for me, unnecessary work is if it takes you an hour to find a document, that's unnecessary work. You know, let read my book, follow my framework and organize information where it belongs. So you don't have to spend an hour or five hours looking for that piece of information somewhere. Um, or not knowing how to use email properly and wasting hours a week because you're just inefficient at using email. So anything that that has to do with inefficient um, uses of time is what I'm calling unnecessary work. You talk about unnecessary email. Um, I hope I don't use email unnecessarily. I probably do. Uh, one of the things you talk about in your book is inbox zero. What does that mean? What is efficient or correct use of email? How are we, how are we using email incorrectly so that we end up drowning in work? Less. Um, so first you have to understand what is email supposed to be used for? And if we take a step back, email is one of these tools that's been around for decades. And so people are comfortable with it, but they've also adopted bad habits. When you look, though, at the last five to 10 years, there's a whole bunch of new types of tools that have come to market. You might have heard of Slack and Asana and Notion and Coda and all these other tools. And people just haven't yet been taught what's the purpose of each of these tools. And they're used to and they still are operating email as a Swiss army knife because that's what they've always done. And so when you take a step back, email is an external communication tool. Right. So you should be using email with people outside of your company pri primarily. 
things like Slack and Microsoft Teams are internal communication tools. When you look at the logic of these tools, email is chronological, like the, the most recent things at the top, versus the logic of Slack or Microsoft Teams. It's by category or topic. There's things called channels and other features that make it more robust for the context of team communication. So email is just this external communication tool. I like to think of it as an external to-do list that other people can add to. And inbox zero basically just means that you're using email like a to-do list. And just like in a to-do list, you don't want to have thousands of tasks that just pile up. You don't want to have thousands or tens of thousands of emails that pile up. You want to have a grip on it. And when you open your email, it's really just things that you need to deal with right now. And the best way to get to inbox zero is email zero. So identifying all the things that you're doing in email that shouldn't even be an email. For example, like I said, internal communication should go in an internal communication tool. A lot of people are using email like a task or project management tool too. There's, there's tools like Asana or Monday or ClickUp that are built for that purpose. So any, anytime you want to delegate a task to someone, that should be done in your work management tool. That's built for purpose. You can't just click a button and know everything that you need to do today in, in email or everything that you delegated that's passed you or the status of a client project. So different tools have different purposes. Um, and so email's purpose is an external communication tool. And we lay out in the book a framework called RAD, Reply, Archive, Defer. Those are the three things that you should do with every email that comes in. Most people aren't utilizing things like the, the defer part is snoozing. So natively built into all these email platforms, you can click a button and have emails disappear and reappear, reappear on future dates. So there's advanced functionality people just aren't aware of and they're not, they're not in the right mindset of how to think about using email properly. And it's such a commonly used tool that if you just were to get a grip and know how to use email properly, we see three to five hours a week of time savings per employee in a company. What about the correct use of language? This world you're part of seems to have a, a bizarre language. We even call your, your consultancy group leverage. I'm not entirely sure what that means. Um, shouldn't we just simplify our language? Isn't that the best way to manage, to master the work-life balance? That we, we've, we've, we've lost control of our words. So are you suggesting that words are causing inefficiencies in companies? Yes. Like, but the use of, uh, how so, that people are speaking too much or they're using words that are not as simple words as possible? They're using slippery words. They're using particularly words with odd corporate meanings that, are, that aren't entirely clear what they mean. Uh, I mean, I take your point on email. I'm sure that's right. Although, isn't that kind of obvious that, you've got too many emails in your inbox, then you're just inefficient. The same would be true as if you're getting too much mail at home and you're not responding to letters. Well, people might not know that it's inefficient, but they might not know how to deal with it. Like so you might be overweight and you just might not know what you can do to, to fix it, for example. So people know that there's problems. They just don't, they don't necessarily have the tools or the education or knowledge to, to fix it. Um, as it relates to your comment about like the meaning of leverage, for me, leverage just means, um, you know, you, you you invest a little bit or you put a little bit of energy into into something to get much more on the on the other side of it out of it. Um, I'm not seeing the issue 
with the only issue that I'm seeing in companies and teams right now as it relates to language is when you're using some of these platforms that I mentioned before, Slack or Asana, it, you communicate differently in these tools than you would over Zoom or as you would in person. And understanding kind of contextually the what's appropriate to say and how you come off when you're in an asynchronous environment versus a synchronous environment. Asynchronous would be when we're not chatting live. It would be, you know, email would be asynchronous. Slack or Asana would be asynchronous. So I think that as it relates to language, you just have to be careful how you come off because you might be happy with someone and say, cool, and they might interpret that totally differently. But if you were on a live call or in person, they would have known how, how you meant. I think that also with, you know, things like chat GPT and AI, I think communication is going to take a complete huge turn inside of companies because uh, <laughs> were you looking that up as I said? like No, I, I can read your mind, Nick. <laughs> I knew what you were going to say. I, I was going to bring up, I mean, yeah. you can't have a, a tech conversation these days without mentioning yeah. chat GPT. And yeah. uh, I, I, I suspect that I was going to ask you the question that you're about to answer, which is chat GPT could be the fix or it could just deepen the problem depending yeah. how it's used. I don't know. I think that I think that there's a lot of potential down the road with those types of tools. But, you know, yeah. I think... I think communication is going to fundamentally change inside of companies as, as a as a function of tools like ChatGPT and you know Bard and all these other ones. But in terms of, in all seriousness, in terms of ChatGPT, um, can't we automate a lot of our conversations? Eventually, email can be automated, so we'll, we'll be able to essentially tell our email system what to say, and that can radically reduce our email box i think that the that the more straightforward use case of these tools is it like well you know like we're already in in gmail it'll suggest little snippets that it can say to you um so just to make it easier instead of typing out three words it's already predicted the most logical kind of next sequence of words i think that the evolution is going to just be that you know, you can click a button inside of it and it writes an email, but you still edit, verify, and hit send. But it still doesn't take you away from still needing to understand when you should use email and how to use email. These tools will just make it faster for you to respond, you know, to to, to a message. You're, you make a lot of promises in your book about reducing stress and uh, eliminating a lot of people's time. Where do you see the core issue i mean if, if we've talked about email i accept that maybe there are some ways to improve the way people use yeah. email but isn't there a more meta issue here in terms of managing our work life um rather than just how we email what what is the the, the way to begin for people who really do feel as if they're drowning in work it's not just email is there a a, a, a meta theme here of thinking through the problem the meta theme is, here's the challenge. Uh, this will take me about a minute to explain. The challenge is when you're drowning, what do you do? You try to cut corners and you just do whatever's fastest for you in the moment. You're already working a 14-hour day. You're tired. You still have a bunch more to do. 
So you just start cutting corners. That's why you start emailing, texting, doing whatever it takes to get stuff off of your plate like hot potato. The problem is when everyone is in that boat and everyone's playing hot potato, in the moment for that one split second, you just saved yourself, you know, what, five seconds or whatever. But when everyone's just trying to shave five seconds to help themselves, information gets completely fragmented you create this massive scavenger hunt because now nothing's in a logical place. And now as a whole, as a team, you, you are suffering and it's taking far longer to find things. So the name of the game isn't for transferring information as fast as possible, which is what everyone's doing right now in companies. And the underlying theory of my book is that you want to create systems and processes in your team and company to optimize for speed of retrieval of information, not transfer which means you take pause and you put things in the right drawer where it belongs so that tomorrow or next month when you need to find that thing or your colleague needs to find that thing, you know exactly where to look. And so my book lays out a framework called CPR, Communicate, Plan, and Resource. Those are the three drawers that you need to be thinking about of information. It doesn't matter if you're a multi-billion dollar tech company or you're a seven-figure financial advisor. Those are the three buckets you need to you need to be thinking about to have a high performing team. And you already think about it like this in your personal life. For example, when you do your laundry, when you take it out of the dryer, the fastest way to be done with laundry would be just throw it in one drawer. Yet we don't do that. You spend the time to separate your socks in one drawer, your underwear in another drawer. And you do that not because it's Speak for yourself, Nick. I don't know if, if I do that. <laughs> you're I mean, drawers, but, you know, my kids certainly don't. <laughs> Well, a lot of people separate their, their socks in a drawer and underwear in another, and they invest that extra time to organize things in the right drawers because they know that tomorrow when they need to put an outfit together, it's far faster to find what they're looking for. And so it's the same thinking in business. If people were to take pause and put things in the right drawer, it makes life easier, not just for themselves, but for everyone. And it comes back to you when, when others are doing it too. Um, the issue is when you get hired at, at companies, you get information about core values and health insurance. And every year when you have to do annual mandatory training, it's like sexual harassment training, which are all important things, but it hasn't yet permeated into the HR department of companies. And that's what I'm really, uh, focused on right now is how does this become part of your onboarding or of your annual mandatory training so that people start off on the right foot inside of a company. And so before they, they're drowning in work and it's hard to, to, to get them up for air and teach them something new, get them as productive as possible so then they can enter the team and be a high-functioning collaborative team member. Yeah, listening to you, Nick, I have to say that I'm really happy I don't work in an organization. You talk about onboarding, entering the team. You talk about putting everything in the right place, putting everything away. It sounds very dull, uh, very bureaucratic. Where's the creativity? Where's the genius? Are you saying that that doesn't really matter? What about the, the, the truly creative person? Don't they need chaos in order to realize brilliant ideas that no one else has thought of? I mean, the things that I'm laying out right now are for, for everyone, especially for the creative people, because how can you be creative if you're wasting hours and hours a week? Now, you might be arguing like, well, a creative person just doesn't check email 
or they just don't open up any of these things. And sure. Or they live in chaos. Yeah, they, they could. I mean, but they, they'll need to have someone on their team that has a grip on their email and has a grip on stuff. And so my, my, my argument is that all I'm trying to do is not create a rigid, a rigid structure that um, takes a ton of time and now you have no time for creativity. It's, it's, a, it's a way of working that ultimately will give you back usually around a full business day a week. And then you can spend that full day a week on whatever you want. If that's going and being creative, go and be creative. But what we found on average is that people are wasting a full business day a week going on a scavenger hunt searching for things that are disorganized. And if you can eliminate all that and give people back that extra time, they can go and be creative with that extra time. Nick, I'm guessing uh, usually when these sorts of conversations, when the model of a corporate leader comes up, it's Steve Jobs with guys like you. But I'm guessing you're a big fan of, of Tim Cook. You had a piece in Inc. Uh, recently. I think you have a column there. The secret to being a great CEO, chief executive officer, and then you say finding the right COO, a, a chief operating officer. Yeah. Are, are you in your book, are you suffering from the cult of the COO? Are you suggesting that really the best companies are operationally successful and that the best executives are guys like Tim Cook that make companies run on time? Sorry, what's your question? That the best companies have good COOs? Yeah, that when we think of Tim Cook, we don't think of a man with a great deal of, you know, if you want to contrast Cook and, and, and Jobs. Jobs was the creative genius. And then everyone thought when Jobs died and passed the mantle to Cook that Apple would essentially die or shrivel up. But it hasn't. It's actually done even better since Jobs departed. Yep. Cook is not a, a, a creative genius, but he's certainly a, a, a brilliant operational man. And that's how he earned his spurs uh, mm -hmm. at Apple under Jobs. So are you suggesting in a, in a broader kind of organizational sense that the most important figure at a company is the chief operating officer? What's the point of even having a CEO? No, I'm not arguing that. I mean, you need you need all of it. I mean, a CEO should be setting the vision and financing the vision. If you don't have a vision and money to finance the vision, then, you know, what's the point? You know, I think that this is the difference between efficiency and effectiveness, you know, and operations that what we're talking about is, you know, more on the efficiency side, which means doing things right. And effectiveness is all about doing the right things. So I'm not I'm not advocating that one's more important than the other. I'm just advocating that um, this stuff is very valuable and shouldn't shouldn't be dismissed. Um, that article that you showed, it's funny that you showed that. I actually uh, have a full time writer on my team, so we have a process for kind of writing these. I actually haven't even read this article because although your name is associated with that, I mean, is that? Something you should acknowledge publicly. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's a form of delegation. Like it's all my. No, it isn't. I mean, you sh if 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 you if your name is associated with an article in a magazine, shouldn't you have written it? Well, if you have Chat GPT write an article and then you go and post it somewhere, did you write it or can you put your name on it? Oh, I haven't used Chat GPT for that. <laughs> well, it's all my IP and content, and we have a process where I'm sending audio uh, audio messages about the the main points, and then it gets written. 
So I, I still. It's interesting that. that you mentioned you seem to have a fetish, or maybe your assistant has a fetish with the number three. Every one of your your ink pieces talks well, about you. Three traits for successful entrepreneurs. Three strategies for emotionally intelligent leaders. Three strategies to overcome imposter syndrome. Is three an efficient number, Nick? It's not an efficient number. It's an effective number. When you look at the, the data around highest performing articles on that platform, the number one most important thing with an article is the title. If, if the title isn't punchy, uh, nothing else matters. And typically, in general, the most effective titles have a number in it, typically three. And you'll see this not just on mine, but if you look up any of the top writers on that platform. And then also, uh, they also reference usually a famous person too, like a Mark Cuban. You know, the three ways Mark Cuban wakes up in the morning or something like that. So that then it kind of ticks all the boxes of having a number so people know it's digestible, digestible in a framework. And it's referencing, um, you know, some celebrity that they recognize. Tell me a little bit more, Nick, about this company, Leverage. Uh... You, you, it claims to be the only consultancy that optimizes both team behavior and systems to deliver results. Is your business companies come to you to be more efficient, to essentially come up for air? Yeah, people will come to us. Um, you know, we have partnerships also with a lot of these software companies. So people come to us, either they read the book or through the partnership. And it's a multitude of things. A lot of people right now, most people that are um, writing in from the book are saying that they're drowning in email. And so we're, we have programs to help people get to inbox zero. We have group training programs there. We have, um, likewise, we have group training programs on all the different core tools, Slack, Asana. Um, and so we help companies get set up for success and train their teams on those tools. And then we also do private consulting, uh, for larger companies where we'll do this on a private basis, or they'll have complex, processes uh, a department that needs to get overhauled and they'll hire us to come in and um, try to make them more efficient it's interesting that consulting seems to be a, a big business we had a show recently with rosie collingwood on uh the consulting industry she co-wrote a book with mariana mazuchatu the big con how the consulting industry weakens our businesses infantilizes our governments and warps our economies in, in fairness i mean she's talking about the big consultants yeah i'm, I'm reading like you. right now when mckenzie uh, comes to town yeah um in that space do you think that there's some truth to that i mean has have most businesses uh, talking about coming up for air have they they're, they're lacking confidence they're spending huge amounts of money going to large groups like McKenzie, McKinsey, and they don't really know what to do. Is that fair? I, I, don't, I, I can't speak for those people. What I can say, though, is uh, unlo the, the models of some of these big places, they're really helping to shape strategy and tell people what they should be doing in the next you know, five years, 10 years, et cetera. And I think some of the heat that they're getting, at least in this book that I'm reading, I'll speak to that, you know, that they, there is a lot of conflicts of interest where they're advising companies that are harming the global economy or harming, you know, coal companies that 
are, um, you know, affecting climate change uh, negatively and things like that. And so there was, there was a lot of comments on how these big consultancies are harmful. The stuff that we do though, we're not telling anyone what they should be doing. Um, we're just trying to help reduce the stress at work and reduce the friction and help them move faster in whatever direction they wanted to move faster in, in the first place. Yeah, an interesting piece in courts. I hope you wrote this one from February of this year. Yeah. How highly productive people at work can cause problems for their teams. Are some people simply too productive? Do they make everyone else feel inadequate? Is that the thing that's creating some of the hysteria? The punchline in that article, that, that one uh, I did write. Um, the thing is, individual productivity is necessary, but not sufficient for teams to be productive. You need to have collaboration, coordination, sometimes sacrifice your own productivity for the greater good of the team. And that picture that you were showing was of the 2004 U.S. men's Olympic basketball team, which is an example I like to use because it really highlights, you know, you have this team of superstars in that picture that's uh, what Carmelo Anthony and Tim, Dun Tim Duncan. Um, they had all these superstars, individual pro productive uh, basketball players, and they get blown out by Puerto Rico in game one and end up with just winning the bronze medal. It was um, one of the biggest upsets in Olympic history. So how does it happen that you have all these individually productive people, yet you get blown out by Puerto Rico in game one? And that's because it's not enough to just have ind individually productive people you need to work well together as a team. You need to collaborate well as a team. And oftentimes when you have an individual superstar, they think that they're better than the system or they're, they're you know. Well, they usually are, aren't they? Well, they, they usually are, but that doesn't give them the right to not kind of be a team player still because if, if that's the way that people kind of show up and act and they think that they don't need to, you know, follow the same processes or, or work together in a collaborative way, everyone as a whole is going to suffer. You would be, be better off having a bunch of A minus players that all work well together than a mix of A's and B's and the A's don't want to, you know, follow the game plan. So finally, Nick, what is the message for the A's? Should they simply not join organizations? They're impatient, they're creative. Often they're intolerant, they're difficult to work with, they're not the most collaborative of people. Are you suggesting that the only way organizations can really work is if they're made up of B or B plus people? No, I'm saying you want to have as many A's as you can and you want them to be coordinated and, and collaborative. Um, but but, but, but the, the very definition of an A person is often they're not. You can't have everything. You can't be amazingly original and creative and at the same time be collaborative. I, I don't think that's true. I mean, look, I consider myself an A player. I used to be a high frequency trader on Wall Street for about eight years. And I ended up leaving because I didn't find my team to be or specific people on my team to be easy to work with and collaborative. And when you are spending more than half of your life with a set group of people, you know, you spend more time with your colleagues than you do your family. So if, if it's a toxic environment that that's not fun or not easy to work work around, it's, um, it's going to be a challenge to retain people. So I, I don't think that, I don't think that this stuff is, uh, you know, oh, you're, you're a genius, you're a creative genius, you're, you know, there's places and companies 
for every type of role, you know, and it's that, that whole, that whole um, concept, you know, are you the right person on the bus? Are you on the right seat on the bus? You know, maybe these people just need to be on different seats, but I still wouldn't want, I wouldn't want to have a, a genius creative that's extremely difficult to work with. Anything that you tell them to do, they just argue with you. They are not going to go on any of the systems you're talking about. You tell them to show up at nine, they show up at 10. Like, I don't care how smart you are. That's not going to work out. So what happens to see people like me, uh, Nick? Not very creative and terrible at collaboration. Should we just you start a show and you interview people? <laughs> <laughs>